just realized you did that holding the baby. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. No way I could do that and uh, stay focused. So we are continuing our study of Genesis. This will not be a typical Christmas sermon focusing on the advent or incarnation of Jesus Christ, but as we've been studying the opening chapters of Genesis, I hope it's been clear to you over at least the last couple of weeks that in Genesis 2 in particular, we learn about the first time God came to earth, as it were. When God came down close and took a lump of clay and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. The creator came close. Um, and so at Christmas, of course, we learn about Jesus coming, God coming in Jesus, God the Son coming in Jesus to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us. But redemption must be seen in light of creation. We start with creation because the Bible starts with creation, because the whole story starts with creation. The story doesn't start with redemption. The story starts with creation. If God didn't make you, if you're just a product of random forces in the universe or biological and chemical reactions uh, in the world, then what is redemption? If there is no God who made you individually, to whom you are therefore accountable and known and seen, even valued, then what is redemption? So... I make no apologies for not doing a Christmas sermon. If you want the typical Christmas sermon, I'm trying to cook up something for Christmas Eve. We'll see what happens. Hopefully it'll be short. We are, however, studying Genesis, and we're going to be studying Genesis for a long time. We're in chapter 2 still, and we're coming to verses 10 through 17. So find a Bible, grab a Bible, Genesis chapter 2. In chapter 2, we've seen a portrait of the good life, a portrait of paradise, man with God in the garden. God gives man everything he needs and more. There's abundance, there's spiritual abundance because he has unhindered relationship with God. There's material abundance because he has the garden. But then he also, as I pointed out last week, um, Mixed in with this abundance, there's also another unexpected, we might think unexpected gifts, a gift, as Nick just pointed out in his prayer. And that gift is a gift of a boundary. God's abundant blessings came with a, with a boundary. The good life in paradise, paradise didn't exclude obedience to God's word. This is so instructive for us. Part of enjoying God and His presence is living under His rule. In fact, to say it more clearly, to enjoy God and His abundance, you must live under His rule. And we all know this by personal experience. When we've tried to live life on our own terms and our own way, it hasn't gone well. So we must live with God, under His rule, to experience and really enjoy the blessings that He has for us in this world and with Himself. So we're seeing blessings and boundaries in the garden. Let's read the whole text, verse 8 through 17, then we're going to focus on 10 through 17 because we did 8 and 9 last week. So again, this is Genesis chapter 2, 
I'm going to read 8 through 17, then we'll zero in on 10 through 17. So 8 through 17 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God puts Adam in a well-watered garden. It has two special trees. He says he can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he disobeys God's word, death will be the consequence. The main takeaway, as I said last week, and we'll repeat now, the main takeaway of this text for us today is simple. You're like, John, I don't know what, what's going on with all these rivers and what is this all about, this garden, this man, these rules. What is the take? Well, here's the takeaway. Here's my sermon in a sentence. You ready? God created us to bless us with life and joy, but that life and joy is only found in obedience to Him. God created us to bless us with life and joy, but this life and joy will only be found in obedience to Him. This is the main point of this text. There are blessings in the garden and boundaries. This is about God's extravagant blessing toward man and his sovereign rule over man. So as I said last week, we can kind of break this text up like this. Verse 8, one garden. Verse 9, two trees. Verses 10 through 14, four rivers. And verses 15 through 17, two rules. So one garden, two trees, four rivers, and two rules. Last week we did one garden and two trees. This week we'll do the four rivers and two rules. Number one, verses 10 through 14, the four rivers. I won't read all of it again, but in verse 11, there's the Pishon. Verse 13, the Gihon. Verse 14, the Tigris and Euphrates. There's a lot of debate amongst scholars about why these verses, or excuse me, why these four rivers are here. Scholars have tried to figure out exactly where this region is or was. It's, been, it's kind of reminded me of the search for Atlantis, the lost city of Atlantis. No one seems to know where it is, but everyone has an idea. <laughs> the, 
the search for the Garden of Eden has come up empty, and no one really knows for sure where to locate these rivers and regions, especially the Pishon and the Gihon, because those rivers don't exist today. There are rivers today called the Tigris and Euphrates. They go through Iraq. They spill into the Persian Gulf. So we don't really know where the other rivers were or are. We can speculate. Scholars have speculated about these rivers and regions. There's the region of Cush and Assyria, as mentioned. Havilah. Where are these places? Where are these rivers? Well, we don't know. <laughs> and I'm not going to give uh, you what I think or where I think it was. If you'd like to know uh, my opinion, ask me after Christmas. Here's what I think Moses is doing. I think there are two real main takeaways for us. Why is this text in the Bible? Why is this digression here in the text? It's inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore profitable for us. So what I think's happening, I think Moses is going out of his way to make it clear that the Garden of Eden is a historical, not mythical place. It was a historical, not a mythical place. He's placing the Garden of Eden within the geography, the known geography of the ancient Near East so that his readers and us would know that this narrative is based in real places with real people and real events. Therefore, it's historical, not mythical. And even more than this, here's, I think, why, maybe a deeper reason why we don't know where this garden is or was. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says that there's this reason uh, why we can't locate the garden. He says, quote, The names of these rivers affirm that there was a garden there, but maybe the insoluble geography is a way of saying that it is now inaccessible to, even unlocatable by, later man. In other words, here's what Dr. Wenham is saying, there was a real Garden of Eden. Moses intends us to know that there was a real place called the Garden in Eden. But because of what happened there, we aren't meant to know where it is or be able to enter it again. And this becomes clear in chapter 3, 24. After sin, after judgment, God drives out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was never intended to get back to this garden. It is not for us to know where it is, where it was. Not to mention the obvious fact, and I was telling Mason this week, it just behooves me that more scholars don't point out the obvious, that, that the garden was, uh, was submerged under the flood. More on that later if you want to talk. We can talk more about that. We may not know where these rivers are. We may not know exactly where these regions were or are. But what we can see, what becomes clear, is that Moses wants to locate us geographically. And we can see clearly from the text that these rivers, notice verse 10, flow out of Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. So the picture is a water coming into the garden and then splitting into four rivers and flowing out of the garden. So the point is that this river that ends up blessing the whole world, these rivers that end up blessing the whole world, come from, originate in the garden. Theologically speaking, and you remember the, the 
descriptions here. The land is full of gold. There's onyx stone and bdellium, and there's these, these beautiful stones and, and lush trees and all this stuff around these rivers. The, the point is that these rivers symbolize the blessing of God, and where does the blessing of God come from? The blessing of God comes from the presence of God. The blessing of God comes from the garden. The rivers come out of the garden. God's beauty and blessing overflowed out of the garden into the world. The garden is portrayed as a center of blessing for the whole world. Wherever God's presence is, blessings flow out. You keep reading in the Bible, you'll find more rivers that flow from God's presence. I'd like to look at two of them with you. If you want to find Ezekiel 47, you may. Ezekiel 47. Want to hear something coincidental? Just yesterday I was reading a book that's not about the Old Testament at all, and the author referred to this text. (laughs) So that was God telling me that I must read it. I don't know. I don't know. Here we go. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Listen to how Ezekiel describes this river. Then he brought me to the back, excuse me, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold the the threshold of the temple toward the east. The temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate. And led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand... And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea where the water flows into the when the water flows into the sea the water will become fresh and wherever the river goes every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Eneglaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit, fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The image is of a river, really a small stream, starting at the temple in Jerusalem. And then if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that directly east, down through the Arabah or the desert, is called the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. There's this 
picture of a small trickling brook that becomes wider and wider and wider, and then eventually a flowing river all the way into the Dead Sea, and it's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives there. It flows into the sea, though, as the text says, and what happens? Life springs up everywhere. Sea creatures and trees, lush fruit and vegetation is all around this river. Even fishermen are coming and catching amazing fish like they would over in the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. Everywhere this river goes, there's life. And as it says there in verse 12, the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So what comes out of the sanctuary? A river of life. A river that brings life to everything it touches. The Apostle John picks up on this in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. I'll read two verses. This is his vision of the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this river of the water of life will create luscious trees that will provide food and nourishment and healing. And as Ezekiel said, Everything will live where the river goes. I love that Jared pointed this out in, in our training class this morning. This river says it will water trees that have fruit and leaves for the healing of the nations. Meaning that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be complete healing. Emotional, spiritual, physical, psychological every kind of healing you can imagine. And Jared pointed out that this means there will be no remorse or, or no regret in heaven. We won't carry the wounds of our lives into the next age. We won't wonder what could have happened or what sh we should have done or what did happen. We won't be dwell dwelling on those things. The leaves and the fruit of this tree, these trees by this water will Heal us holistically. We won't have need for any therapy in heaven. The psalmist goes on in Psalm 46. This is what Jared read also at the beginning of our service, Psalm 46.5. He talks of a river that has streams that make glad the city of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about that there's a river that flows into the city of God and it brings life and healing and all these other things Ezekiel and John have pointed out but the, the psalmist David says it also is bringing joy. This is a happy river. It's bringing smiles and happiness to your hearts. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The city of God isn't like any other city because in this city everyone's happy all the time. Not like Dallas or wherever it is that you came from. This city has happy people. 
really happy, not superficially happy, but really happy, not in and of themselves, because this river is making them eternally and increasingly happy and whole. The rivers of Ezekiel and John and the Psalms are meant to point us back to Genesis 2 where where we meet these four rivers, this one river that becomes four, blessing the whole world. These rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden are meant to point our attention forward to this more important river, this river of life. These rivers in Genesis symbolize the river of the new Eden that will give abundant life and everlasting joy to the people of God. This river that will nourish, sustain, grow, and bring life to all the arid places. When I was in Israel five years ago, we were walking and there was this little river stream thing and the tour guide pointed out that, you know, in Hebrew there's this phrase uh, for living waters, living waters, and it's used to describe these bodies of water, these rivers that go through the land and literally create life. They're waters that are living because there's just life. And we walked by it and it was all arid and dusty and dry and rocky, but by the water it was all green. And there were trees and bushes and grass and these living waters are available for us, for all who are going to inhabit the new Eden, the new heavens and new earth. But interestingly, these, leave, these, these living waters are also available to you now. I think some of you probably know where I'm going if you've read the Gospel of John. What does Jesus say in John 7? Here's what he says. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he tells us. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ are given the Spirit of God. Meaning that real living Spiritual water now flows into our hearts and into our beings. Christian, brother or sister in Christ, understand that if you have been saved, you have been also given the Spirit of God, meaning that the very presence of God is with you. He doesn't just live with you, though. He also lives in you. The Spirit lives in you. So the water of God, so to speak, has come to... Fill our bellies, if you will. It's already in our mouths. The life of heaven has come to live in us. The wellspring of Eden flows through our hearts. So this is a weary world. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we never walk through this weary and dry world without water. We have the Holy Spirit, which doesn't make life easy, but it does mean that we have God with us. Now, friend, if you're not yet a Christian, we love you. We're so glad you're here. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ and turned away from your sins, you're welcome to our gatherings any time we meet. But we want you to know and hear clearly that you can't do anything to earn this water. You can't work for this water. You can't afford this water. The only thing you have to have to get this water, Jesus says, 
is thirst. Jesus says it this way, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, the only people who get the nourishment of God are those who understand that they need nourishment from God. Those who are spiritually hungry. Those who are poor in spirit. They understand their spiritual poverty. They will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Jesus comes to quench our deepest thirst, that thirst we have for love and mercy and welcome and friendship and forgiveness and freedom and righteousness and healing. Jesus' water is better than any Berkey or Brita filtered water, better than every other thing you're drinking. Remember what Ezekiel said, everything will live where his river goes. Jesus is a water that brings life to all the dead places. One of the dangers of our faith, and I battle against this just as much as you do, maybe even more because I'm paid to be spiritual, is pretending like you're all, you're all right, like everything's great, like, like everything's just wonderful, and not really being honest with yourself, with God, or anyone else in the world. This is dangerous because we can't keep that up for very long. That facade is exhausting. One of the blessings of the gospel is that the water of God comes into your life to bring life to all those dry and arid places. To, to bring life to all those forgotten or forgettable experiences. To bring life to the dead things. The things you wish never happened. The things that you will walk through, Jesus' water comes to bring life into those places so that you can be honest about them. You can own those things. You can share those things. You can rest in the love of your Savior. He's not going to withhold His water from you just because you've done this or done that or had this done to you. His water is for everyone who's thirsty. Are you thirsty? To say it another way, stop pretending that you're not thirsty if you are thirsty. Jesus' living water creates life. His living water then continues to create life in our lives. Whatever he touches starts coming to life. First, he has to raise us from the dead. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we're dead, not just sick. So if you're not yet a Christian, you have to understand that becoming a better person is not Christianity. That's not it. That's not it. Jesus says you're dead and you need to be raised. And then, and then, only then, you'll start to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus came to make us alive, not just make us better. He came to... Raise the dead, not just heal the sick. This is why true Christians and true churches start looking more and more like Jesus, less and less like counterfeits. This is why true Christians and true churches have things happening in their lives and in their churches that nothing but God can explain. And this is many of our testimonies. 
We, many of us can't say, you know, I used to be a bad person, but as soon as I started becoming a good person, the power of God was unleashed in my life. What has happened, and I know many of your stories, is that when I realized my deep and abiding thirst for the Lord God and admitted that to Him, received His grace, gave my life to Him, man, then the power of God was unlocked. And stuff started happening that I can't explain. There's no way I should be preaching the Bible. You have no idea what's happened to me in my life, what I've done. The power of God is the only reason that I, have to, that I get to stand here. Or that you get to be where you are. Serving, ministering, loving, praying, giving. None of that happens apart from the grace of God. His living water creates life. And then whatever that living water touches, those things start coming to life too. I was terrified of speaking in public when I was in college. And the Lord was starting to move in me. No way I could do this. But the Spirit of God comes and He gives life to those who admit their need. So these are the four rivers. Now, let's go on. Two rules. The four rivers of verse 10 through 14 point us to this river of life that flows out of God's presence, creating bounty and beauty, blessing everywhere it goes. But then we come to 15 through 17, and we come to God's two rules for man in the garden. I want to read these verses again. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Each of these verses could be summarized by one word. Verse 15, vocation. Verse 16, permission. Verse 17, prohibition. Vocation, permission, prohibition. Unfortunately, as one commentator points out, quote, in the popular understanding of this story, little attention is given to the mandate of vocation or the gift of permission. The divine will for vocation and freedom has been lost. The God of the garden is chiefly remembered as the one who prohibits. End quote. In other words, these verses, these three verses, show us that God isn't just a God of no, but a God of yes and one no. He's a God who created us to enjoy His creation, to cultivate His creation. Yes, of course there's a prohibition of verse 17. But the prohibition must be read in light of the previous two verses. The gift of vocation and the gift of freedom in God's garden. So let's go through these verses one at a time. Verse 15, vocation. It says again, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 8 has already told us this, but it left out an important detail. Verse 8 has said that God created man, put him in the garden. Tells us what happened. Then verse 15 tells us why. God takes the man, puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I think this is one of the most important verses for your life. I know preachers can be prone to overstatement. But let me say this again. I think 
this may be one of the most important and practical verses in your life. Because it helps you understand the sacredness of the thing you'll do with most of your time on planet Earth. Namely work. You're like, John, I don't want to talk about work. I'm not here to talk about work. I hate my work. Well, let's talk about work. Let's talk about work. To work it and keep it. This is why God put man in the garden. This word for work is often used for tilling the ground. It also can simply mean to serve. To serve the garden. So God put man in the, in the garden to serve. God put Adam there not to be served, but to serve. Then the word keep means to guard, to exercise great care over, even to protect. This is the same root word used in 324, where it says the cherubim are put there to guard the way to the tree of life. This is going to be very important for us when we get eventually get to Adam's failure um, in Genesis 3. One of his jobs was to protect the garden. Somehow this serpent slithered in. This is why God, one reason, one reason why God comes to him first. He was explicitly told to protect the garden and to work the garden, to keep it and to work it. These words tell us what God's intentions for man in the garden were. The garden was to be worked and protected. As one scholar says, Eden is certainly not a paradise in which man passes his time in idyllic and uninterrupted bliss with absolutely no demands on his daily schedule. In other words, Adam and Eve weren't given a lounge and a, a lounge chair and a margarita. They were given a pair of gloves and a shovel, a rake and a chainsaw. Anybody with me on the chainsaw? No? I think that stuff's fun. For maybe those of us who do knowledge work, a laptop and some spreadsheets. He gave these things, these directives to Adam because work was not a product of sin, not a result of sin, but was rather a gift and command of God. None of his work was going to be toil or painful or frustrating. It would be a blessing, not a curse. God himself was working in the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God was working, so those created in his image would work. So before sin entered the world, man's work would be all joy, no pain, all fun, no frustration. God wanted man to work the garden. But he didn't have to work so his material needs would be met. He didn't have to work to eat. God had met all his needs abundantly. We've just seen in verse 16 that God says you can eat anything you want. So he's not eating for, or excuse me, working for provision. He's working just to be working, to be enjoying God's creation, with working with God and cultivating his creation. The essence of work in the beginning wasn't survival, but enjoying God's world, like a son working with his father to make something wonderful. One of my favorite things to do is to build Legos with my sons, Elisha and Gideon. Lydia's kind of getting there, but really she's more of a tornado that comes through um, and just destroys. But we love her. She's learning how to build slowly. The boys, though, boy, they love to build, and I love to build. A lot of times what happens is we'll start building something together, and they lose interest, and I'm still stuck there at the little kid table building by myself because it's fun. 
creating something, father and son working on something wonderful together. So man in the garden was free to be creative without having to worry about how the bills would be paid. Of course, sin comes into the world and all of this changed. But when sin came into the world, what changed wasn't that man had to work, but that his work would now be marked by pain and frustration. Chapter 3, verse 17. Adam, and to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When man rebelled against God, God gave them what they wanted, namely self-reliance. But from then on, God says that they're only going to eat if they sweat. They're only going to eat if they toil. They're only going to eat through pain. The curse isn't that we have to work, but that work comes with weariness and anxiety and unmet expectations and a sense of futility. I talked about this a few weeks ago. How many of us in our jobs feel like we're doing and doing and doing and we wonder what on earth is any of this for? Why on earth am I doing this? This means nothing in the grand scheme of things. That sense of futility is because of sin, not because of work. In this fallen age, in our work, we must work against the obstacles that make work hard we can no longer pick fruit from someone else's garden. Some Christians in the early church were making this mistake. They believed that Jesus would come back any day. They weren't necessarily wrong to believe that, but that led them to also believe that because Jesus would come back any day, they could stop working and live off of other people's work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10-12, For even when we were with you, Paul writes, we would give you this command, So this is an apostolic command. It carries the authority of the Lord Jesus. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The Greek for the phrase, earn their own living, means eat their own bread. Notice he says the command is, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Not if anyone is not able to work. There's a difference. It's a key distinction. Lots of people are not able to work. That's not who I'm talking to. That's not who Paul's talking to. That's not what this is about. Those who can work but choose not to are the problem. Some people in the church were able to work, but they were choosing not to. Instead, they were living off the work of others. They were eating the fruit produced by someone else's sweat. God's design is that those who are able to work must earn their own living, eat their own bread, not live off the work of someone else. Work is inherently good, but under a curse, so we must now work to eat. We don't just work for fun anymore. We have to work to eat. 
One implication of this, by the way, is when we're considering a job opportunity, it's perfectly appropriate to talk about the financial side of things. A lot of Christians think that talking finances is like unspiritual. And if if there's greed, if there's a worldly desire for riches, that's one thing. But being able to make enough money to provide for yourself and your family is very spiritual and godly and right. If a job can't pay you what you need to support yourself or your family, then you may need to look for another job. This means that you may have to do something that you don't enjoy as much. The principle is this. The objective responsibility that we have to support ourselves and our families is more important than the subjective desire that we have to do something that we love. Of course, doing what we enjoy while getting paid enough to support ourselves and our families is wonderful, but it's not always possible. Many times Christians have over-spiritualized work and assume that if I don't enjoy my work, even though it pays me what I need to make, well, then I'm not in the center of God's will. That's just not in the Bible, though. The Bible plainly says that our calling is to make enough to support ourselves and those that we care for, if you have a family, a wife, or children. Men especially need to think carefully through this, as God has created us to be the main providers for our families. Providing food for our family is more important than enjoying our job. In this fallen age, our work is for food. Sometimes it can be for fun. We pray for that. We can desire that. But if anyone is not willing to work, Paul says he should not eat. In other words, work so that you can eat. So we've covered vocation. Back to Genesis 2, verse 15. God created work inherently good, not inherently bad. Then, verse 16, we come to God's permission. God's permission. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice says, notice that it says, The Lord God commanded. So God not only permits, but even commands man to enjoy every tree of the garden. God's will is that we enjoy His world. His provision in the garden was plentiful. There's no lack. Nothing ran out or spoiled, or was lost. They never had to throw away leftovers. Everything was always good and wonderful. God wanted to bless His creatures. He wanted them to enjoy His world liberally. liberally. Interestingly, many today reject God because they assume that God is mostly strict instead of mostly generous. They reject God because... They see God as too strict. And I would say if that's who you're talking to, maybe that's you this morning, but if you're talking to someone and their view of God is that he's just the big guy in the sky with a bunch of rules to keep us in line, exercise authority over us, and kill all of our fun. Well, that's not the picture of God that we find in the Bible. 
The picture of God we find in the Bible says, hey, every tree I've created you can enjoy. Except one. We're going to come to the prohibition. But every other tree is yours. Enjoy it. In the garden there was only one no. Everything else was yes. Have you ever meditated on this fact? In the garden of Eden there was only one no. Everything else that man wanted to do, he could do before sin comes into the world. I thought about this a lot as a parent. This idea that in the garden there was one no, multiple yeses. Obviously we should have clear boundaries for our children, but if our house is full of no's and only a very few yeses, then we may be more concerned with our kids' behavior than we are about their hearts. Obviously, behavior is important. What I've noticed in me is that I am usually concerned about my kids' behavior because I'm concerned about how it will make me look. I want them to behave well so that I look like a dad who's got everything under control, which is kind of silly because the reality is most of the time I feel like the inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> control is an illusion when you have children. We must discipline our children, but discipline is no substitute for regeneration. Uh, as parents, we're called to teach and model the gospel for our children, we pray for faith, remembering that faith is a gift from God. And we look for fruit. But one way to undermine the whole process is to have a home that is marked by demands rather than delight. In her novel, Gilead won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. Marilyn Robinson says, quote, Prohibition loses its force if it's invoked too generally. Prohibition loses its force if it's invoked too gen generally. In other words, if everything's always no, then when you say no and really mean it, it doesn't matter. Many of my no's in my house are a result of me being easily annoyed, not because any immoral or moral infraction has, occur has occurred. Many of the no's that come out of my lips are because, you know, my kid's being too loud or he's tapping when I don't want him to be or he's, he's, he's doing this or doing that. He's not doing anything wrong except annoying me <laughs> in the cutest way possible. Prohibition loses its force if it's invoked too generally. Later in this same book, Marilyn Robinson makes an observation that's stuck with me for many months now. Through the main character, this minister named John Ames, she says, It's the consistent examples of parents in the Bible that they honor their children. I think it is notable in this connection that it is not Adam, but the Lord who rebukes Cain. Eli never rebukes his sons, or Samuel his. David never, never rebukes Absalom. At the very end, poor old Jacob rebukes his sons as he blesses them. 
This is a remarkable thing to consider. End quote. The point is not that parents should not discipline their children. Paul makes that explicit in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. The point is, as Robinson says, the consistent example of parents in the Bible is that they honor their children. Here's what I deduce from this. If it's true that children ordinarily honor parents they respect, or to say it in an opposite way, that they won't respect parents who they don't honor, who don't honor them, excuse me, then parents who are overly critical, excessively negative, always competitive, easily annoyed, and anxious to exert their rule over their children shouldn't be surprised if their children fail to honor them. Let me say this again. If it's true that children ordinarily honor parents they respect or that they won't respect parents who don't honor them, then parents who are overly critical, excessively negative, always competitive, easily annoyed and anxious to exert their rule over their children shouldn't be surprised if their children fail to honor them. These kinds of parents cast a dark shadow over their homes, which, as I can attest, a shadow that ends up lingering over your children throughout their lives. In the Garden of Eden, there was one no, and a liberal, abundant yes. A godly parent aims at the discipline and delight of their children. They want them to fear and enjoy the Lord. They remember that the garden was a place of innumerable blessings and only one boundary. They remember that everything except one thing was lawful in the garden. That the garden was characterized by permission, not prohibition. By delight, not demands. So if you're a parent or want to be a parent, as you think about establishing your family rules, and you should have family rules, as you think about setting appropriate boundaries for your children, please remember that it's grace, not law, that changes kids' hearts. That God's kindness, not His severity, is what leads to repentance. That what we're after as parents, our main goal is that God would bless our children with faith, not that they would have socially acceptable behavior. That really, if we're honest, are because we want to look like successful and spiritual parents. God, help us. God, help us love our kids' hearts and to create homes that reflect His character in all of its aspects. God commands man to enjoy every tree of the garden. God wants to bless His creatures through His creation. He wants His world to be enjoyed liberally. liberally. I'm not talking about politics, by the way. You news junkies, I know every time the word liberal comes up, you think things that aren't necessarily true. God wants His world to be enjoyed abundantly. This affects the way we parent. I think this affects the way we schedule our weeks. 
one way we can apply some of these things to our lives is by practicing a regular Sabbath. If you'll remember, I preached on this about a month ago. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, when God rested on the seventh day. And I wonder, in the last month, how are you doing with Sabbath? How are you doing with Sabbathing? Have you established a routine of regular rest? Do you take a 24-hour period off from paid and unpaid work to rest in the Lord? You're like, John, I have kids. I do too. You can't just like lock your kids up and, you know, forget about them for a day. There are ways, though, to shape your schedule and your life so that you are freed up from some of the normal work, paid or unpaid, that you have to do every other day so that you can spend one day enjoying God and enjoying God's world. How are you Sabbathing? Do you have a regular Sabbath? If not, why not? You're like, John, I have too much to do. I know, that's the problem. You have too much to do. Start saying no to some of that stuff. The world will keep on going and you'll feel better, I promise. Peter Schizero says as part of Observing Sabbath, God invites us to enjoy and delight in His creation, all the gifts He offers us in it. These innumerable gifts come to us in many forms, including people, places, and things. The Sabbath is like a window in time where God wants us to enjoy His creation. So what gives you joy and delight? What refreshes you? For me, it's parks and trees and running and books. You may think all that's lame. I think all that's amazing. For Susie, it's good food and tennis and good conversation. What brings you joy and delight? What refreshes you? Sabbathing is not a self-help technique. It's one of God's best gifts to his image bearers for their refreshment. If you neglect neglect it, you're refusing one of God's best gifts and eventually you'll reap what you sow. So Sabbathing is one way we can apply verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. In other words, I created you to enjoy my world. Enjoy it. I made it for your enjoyment. Now this brings us to the prohibition. Verse 17, the prohibition. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Even this prohibition, by the way, is evidence of God's goodness. What do I mean? Out of mercy, God tells Adam and Eve that there will be severe consequences if he eats of this tree. In other words, God's warnings are evidence of God's grace because they're meant to keep us from the brink of destruction. Imagine that God just turned them loose, knowing that this tree would kill them. And he just turned them loose without telling them. Would that be evidence of the goodness of God? No, that's an evil God. Instead, he says, hey, you can have everything in the garden, but this one tree, don't eat of it. If you do, you're going to die. If God didn't love us, he'd never warn us. He'd just let us stumble over the cliff of destruction without ever telling us there was a cliff there in the first place. The reason they must not eat of this tree is because when they do, they will surely die. This is a super 
serious command. They're not going to go to timeout. They're not going to have their pay docked. They're not going to lose their job. If they disobey this rule, they're going to die. But, again, this verse, this command, has to be seen in light of the previous two verses. God has put man in a garden of beauty and bounty and given him everything he needs, given him satisfying work, said he could have anything he wants except the fruit of this one tree. So this prohibition in verse 17 is meant to protect and preserve the blessings of verse 15 and 16. The prohibition is meant to preserve the blessing of God in man's life. In other words, God's rules are meant for man's joy. Not our misery. God indeed wants to increase our happiness, not take it away. Interestingly, as we'll see in Genesis 3, the serpent totally ignores verses 15 and 16 when he comes and tempts Eve. He makes no reference to God's abundant provision and goodness. Have you ever thought about this? Because he knows that's an argument he's going to lose every time. It's too obvious. The goodness of God is too obvious around him. Instead, he only magnifies God's prohibition. He wants Adam and Eve to see God as harsh, not good. He wants Adam and Eve to see God as holding out on them, not generous and liberal in his giving. He wants them to see God in the exact opposite way that God presents himself as a God of blessing with one boundary. There's no reason stated for the prohibition. Many have asked, well, why would God do this? Why not just let him, leave, let him live and enjoy the, the garden? God, why did you just leave him alone? Why did they have this tree? Well, where the Bible is silent, we need to be silent. What we do know is that what's at stake here is whether or not man will choose to obey God's words. God plainly says, don't do this, and if you do this, this will happen. Man is meant to understand that God's word has final sway over his life. Old Testament scholar John Selheimer summarizes this beautifully. He says, the inference of God's commands in 16 and 17 is that God alone knows what is good for man and that God alone knows what is not good for him. To enjoy the good, man must trust God and obey him. If man disobeys, he will have to decide for himself what is good and what is not good. While to modern man such a prospect may seem desirable, to the author of Genesis, it is the worst fate that could have befallen him. Only God knows what is good for man. Only God can know what is good. End quote. The good life only comes by obeying the good word of God. God created us and God is good, so only God knows what is truly good for us. And think about this just logically. If what were good for us was left up to us, then who gets to decide? Whose definition of good is the superior definition? Is it the terrorists? Is it these evil men we just prayed about in Afghanistan? Do they get to decide what's good? Is it the rich and famous people? The rich people who control the levers of power, the famous people who we all know? The politicians, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide what's good? If it's not God, then we'll never know what good is. God alone 
gets to decide what's good because he's God. And who are you, O oh man, O oh woman, to speak back to him and to shake your fist at him and say, no, 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 I'm different. I know what's good for me. You don't understand me, God. I know what's best for me. No, you don't. No, you don't. God gets to decide because he's God. And the good news is that he's also good. He's not evil. He's good. So in this text, we've seen one garden, two trees, four rivers, and two rules. God put Adam in this well-watered garden that had two special trees. He said he could eat from any tree except one. And if he disobeys, death will be the consequence. There were blessings and boundaries. Man would have to decide whether he would trust the word of God or not. For us, as I said, this means that God created us for life and joy to bless us, but that this life of blessing can only be found in obedience to him. Yes, we may work hard, we may be humble parents, and we, we may even be Sabbathing regularly and be blessed as a result. But the truly blessed life only starts and will only be carried forward through obedience to the word of God. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The gospel couldn't be clearer. If you don't believe the gospel, you will go to hell forever. There will be no blessing in your eternity. Zero goodness. All of God's goodness will be taken out of your life forever. But he says, if you do obey the gospel, you're going to be given life, blessed life forever. From the very beginning, breaking God's rules meant death. And of course, we've all broken his rules, so we all deserve death. But Jesus comes along the way and he offers his life as a substitute for ours on the cross so that everyone who puts their trust in him and obeys his word and turns away from their sins will be saved from eternal death and given eternal life. In other words, the principle of the garden hasn't changed. Those who obey God get to live. Those who don't obey God will die. Those who obey the gospel are saved from death and brought back into the paradise of God where they'll enjoy the tree of life and the river of life with the people of God forever. Those who don't obey the gospel will be removed from this earth and placed in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels forever. The principle of the garden hasn't changed. Those who obey the word of God get to live. Those who disobey the word of God will surely die. And the good news of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus came into the world to bring us back into the garden. If you'd like to talk to someone about trusting Jesus, following Jesus, or becoming a Christian, please see someone you came with, someone sitting around you. Come see me or one of our elders after this service. We would love to talk to you about what it means to obey the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take your word and by your spirit write it on our hearts. Help us to take from here the things we need to take from here. 
Help us to think deeply on your word, to see the beauty of the, the river of life, this living water that now flows in our veins, as it were, the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God that lives with us. Lord, many of us don't feel very alive, so we pray by your Spirit that you would bring water to all the dry and arid places, and that you would heal us where we're wounded and where we're hurting. We pray that you would humble us where we're proud. We pray that you would build up our church in the gospel and in the word of God, that we would see that our life, our life is dependent on obeying the word of God. pray for any in here this morning who haven't yet been born again that your Holy Spirit would show them their thirst and give them faith to call out to the Lord Jesus for water. Father, we need you. I pray that you administer your word, your grace in its various forms over our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.